Running back deniers exist. They still exist, those that deny the power of the running back. After our Lord and Savior walked among us in 2019, throughout the football season, Christian McCaffrey walked among us, virtually guaranteeing fantasy football championships for everyone that drafted him at either the 101, 102, 103. And this year, a number of running backs could go over 25 fantasy points a game. Oh, yes. Oh, yes outscoring their wide receiver counterparts by multiple fantasy points per game. And that's assuming that we have a wide receiver one that even gets to 22 fantasy points a game like Michael Thomas did last year, but there's absolutely no guarantee that's going to happen. Less time during training camp and preseason for quarterbacks and wide receivers who develop rapport and chemistry and timing. So I expect the running back one tier to outperform the wide receiver one tier by an even wider margin this year. The wide receiver tiers should continue to flatten and the running back tiers continue to diverge because Miles Sanders is in play to blast past 20 fantasy points per game. Joe Mixon's in play to blast past 20 fantasy points a game. You go down the board, Saquon Barkley, it's Ezekiel Elliott, it's Alvin Kamara, it's Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. You just go down the board and you can envision a scenario where the running back you're selecting in the first round and the second round outperforms all the wide receivers, every single one in fantasy football, with the possible exception of Devontae Adams, and he's going in the early second round anyway. But according to the running back deniers, the robust RB is like wearing two condoms. Like it's the safe play. You want to make the playoffs? Great. Go robust RB. You want to win your championship? Go zero RB. And that is every kind of wrong. Because if you forego a possible 25 points per game running back in the first couple rounds, they just don't exist later in the draft. And you'll certainly never get that kind of production from a wide receiver in today's NFL. So you're foregoing upside. You're not playing it safe with Robust RB. Robust RB is risky. You're investing the majority of your valuable draft capital in a fantasy draft in what is a relatively fragile position. It's anything but safe. But it is very much the path to upside and upside wins championships. You hit on two running backs, you have a massive competitive advantage on the field. Getting two RB1s in your roster is the easiest way not to make the playoffs, to win the championship. And this is the false choice that the RB deniers put forth. Oh, well, the best way to gain leverage on the field is to hit on a running back in the later rounds. And that's true. That's true. Late round running back offers incredible variants that can fuel a team's upside and eventual championship. But guess what? You can draft those guys too. You're not precluded from drafting late round running backs with upside in the later rounds if you start your draft RB times three. You can have it all. Robust RB is not the safe play. You're not doubling up the condom. It's the opposite. You run the risk of a pregnancy if multiple running backs in the early rounds bust, then your fantasy team implodes while your girlfriend explodes. You know, pre pregnancy. Yeah, you know, they get 
the, the stomach. You know, in pregnancy, the stomach. Zero RB is the safe play. Leaning into an, the most anti-fragile roster is, by definition, the safer play. Of course. Of course. But you are absolutely foregoing the upside. You're saying, we're going to have sex. But there's no chance of anal. There's no chance of a 69. I mean, even a blowjob, a 20 fantasy points per game wide receiver is far from a sure thing. It's just not sexy. It's just not that stimulating. When you're drafting a wide receiver projected to give you 19 fantasy points a game in the second round, when you could have a wide receiver that's going to get 17 fantasy points a game in the sixth round, what the fuck are you gaining? Then that's why in my first draft on Underdog Fantasy, I started running back times four. RB, 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 RB. Started off Miles Sanders at the 107. Now, now I did not select Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. I know buzzards are going to come at me and say, well, a couple days later, you selected Clyde Edwards-Hilaire at the same draft slot over Miles Sanders. What are you doing? Well, the answer is I like both fairly equally. These are all purpose backs projected to get the majority of the touches, but not a super majority, right? DeAndre Washington and Darwin Thompson and Daryl Williams will cannibalize touches from Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in Kansas City and Boston Scott and another running back that Philadelphia signs will likely cannibalize touches from Miles Sanders because Philadelphia tried to sign LaShawn McCoy and he opted to sign with the Buccaneers and Devontae Freeman and Lamar Miller are still free agents. So there's a higher likelihood that Philadelphia signs a running back to compete with Miles Sanders in the next month, then Kansas City signs a running back to compete with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. But it's razor close. It's razor close. And on Underdog Fantasy, I wanted to experiment with stacking. It was not a tournament. I'll be joining their tournament next week because the tournament on Underdog Fantasy is incredibly attractive. You can turn $25 into $200,000. That's the grand prize for a mere $25 entry fee. You can win $200,000. And the beauty is there's a million dollars guaranteed. So they're smoothing out the payouts where the first place team does not get the lion's share of the reward. And I prefer that payout structure on underdog. But if you want to get in one of these best ball tournaments, just go to your app store, go to Google Play, type in underdog and get this app. I sat at the pool with my feet up, drinking a beer, drafting. Miles Sanders at the 107, came back, Austin Eckler, he was the last of the electric all-purpose backs available. Aaron Jones, Nick Chubb, gone, gone, went Austin Eckler. Then at pick 31, Melvin Gordon, of course, of course, Melvin Gordon, because Leonard Fournette was not available. At the same pick, I got Leonard Fournette in the pros versus Joes draft. Either Fournette or Gordon will be available in the mid-third round, yes, please. And then I reached, I reached... At pick 42, I reached for DeAndre Swift. I just didn't think that Swift or Akers would be there in the fifth round. So I reached for Swift. Akers did happen to be there. So I regretted it. I regret it. I could, if I could go back in time, I would not have reached for Swift. But I've noticed his ADP is climbing because of the popularity of this show. And he has that league winning upside where you could see DeAndre Swift going out and posting 20 fantasy points a game this year. Because he is essentially a better version of Miles Sanders on a less potent offense. And Karrion Johnson is as much of a threat to DeAndre Swift as Boston Scott is to Miles Sanders. So DeAndre Swift is massively undervalued, and I wanted to start extreme robust running back. In the fifth round, 
Cortland Sutton, then Devontae Parker, Marvin Jones, Christian Kirk, Deshaun Jackson, Antonio Brown, Steven Sims, and Traquan Smith. Those are my wide receivers. Now, how did I approach this draft? I wanted to lock in two top 10 quarterbacks so they would not need to draft a third quarterback. So I got Carson Wentz at the 103 and Tom Brady at the 114. And you'll notice what I did. On underdog, I wanted to stack a pass-catching receiver with a highly volatile wide receiver teammate with Carson Wentz. So that's where I decided to get the correlation. Wentz, Sanders, Deshaun Jackson. A lot of talk of stacking right now. And it makes sense. It makes sense that on those weeks when the Eagles are in a shootout and they're scoring a lot of points, you want to get the biggest share of that pie as possible. And with Wentz and Sanders and Jackson, you have the quarterback, the number one receiver, and the number one running back. So I'm a huge fan of stacking, but I can already see the future. A week from now, stacking will have jumped the shark. Because I know that when smart people and a lot of smart people in the industry have noticed starting to talk about stacking, especially in best ball, when enough voices are putting out the signals, are sending out signals into the universe across a range of frequencies, these signals start to overlap and then they touch everybody. Everyone in fantasy football gets the message. You got to stack. When you're in a league against 11 other opponents, which was this underdog fantasy draft, I just straight up drafted for three bucks. You can do a $3 league. Now, I love the fact that Underdog has these best ball tournaments. Oh, we needed the ability to just crack open an app, join a best ball tournament, and go after 200 grand. You needed that. We needed that. Thank you, Underdog, for bringing this to our mobile phones in such an easy-to-use user experience. Before the next show, I will have joined that tournament, and I will share the results. But for the draft that I'm talking about today, it's just 3 bucks. The entry fee was just $3. The amount of fun that I had drafting this team for $3 is a miracle. Like It's a miracle that this is possible, that you can have this much fun for 3 bucks. Everyone's talking about these tournaments on Underdog, and they're great, but the $3 games are just magical. But we need to highlight the difference between entering a tournament and entering a singular league. So in a singular league, you want to stack, if possible, where it makes sense, but you don't want to reach for stacks in a singular league. In a tournament... You can reach for stacks. Absolutely. In fact, the mistake I made in the Pros versus Joes League that I recently completed was that I reached for Dak Prescott to stack with Amari Cooper when I should have drafted Devontae Parker. So if I could blend those two drafts, the underdog $3 draft and the Pros versus Joes draft, be a great draft. But I made mistakes in both drafts. In the underdog draft, I reached for DeAndre Swift. And you could argue that drafting Antonio Brown was a mistake as well. I often find myself just drafting best player available on the ADP board. That was the case with Cortland Sutton and Devontae Parker and Christian Kirk. He's going at slot 84. I got him at pick 90. Cortland Sutton going at slot 49. I got him at pick 55. Devontae Parker going at slot 55. I got him at pick 66. Steven Sims going at slot 185. I got him at pick 199. Same thing with Austin Hooper. Going at slot 117. I got him at pick 127. Most of the players I selected came at value with the glaring exception of DeAndre Swift. I did pick up a fifth running back. So I did pick up a signature late round running back in Jarek McKinnon. Picked up Jarek McKinnon at pick 175. That was not technically a value because his ADP is 190. But because I started running back times four, that's a huge draft capital investment at running back. 
to make up for such a disproportionate amount of draft capital going to running back, you need to devote the majority of your remaining slots to wide receivers. It's the only way to do it. You can't start with four running backs and then take multiple shots on late-round running backs. It's too many running backs. You're better off picking up starting receivers like Steven Sims for a high floor and upside receivers like Traquan Smith because Emmanuel Sanders has been in decline for a number of years. I think the upside of Emmanuel Sanders in that offense has been overstated. Last year, he had two weeks with more than 20 fantasy points. Year before that, it was four in less games. So in 12 games, four weeks over 20 fantasy points. And then last season, he played in 17 games. He played more games than any other wide receiver because he was traded around the bye week. How many wide receivers can say that? Oh yeah, got an extra game. And yet still, only two 20-point performances. He's 33 years old. Traquan Smith is going to be on the field a lot. He's going to be on the field for all these three wide receiver sets. So there's very few wide receivers in the final rounds of a best ball draft that I would prefer to Traquan Smith. He is the ideal late round wide receiver. And it's why Robust RB makes so much sense because you can get more weekly boom upside from a Traquan Smith because he's going to at least log a 60% snap share every single week than fringe running back X that could get cut before the start of the season. When you back into your strategy by pinpointing the highest floors and ceiling, when you combine floor and ceiling in the later rounds, you want to exclusively draft wide receivers. I did that in the underdog draft, and I did that in the FFPC pros versus Joes. Just just six consecutive wide receivers to close it out. Why not? And I'm getting similar tight ends as well. An underdog, Austin Hooper, Blake Jarwin, Ian Thomas. You have Austin Hooper for stability because he's the highest paid tight end in the league, and he's going to operate as the number three option in the passing game in Cleveland. And you have Blake Jarwin and Ian Thomas starting tight ends on two offenses that we think will be prolific. Everyone knows the Cowboys offense is going to be prolific. We believe the Carolina Panthers offense will also be prolific. So in every draft, I'm trying to get a piece of the Carolina offense. Always trying to get a piece of the Carolina offense. Ideally, Christian McCaffrey, right? (laughs) Not even McCaffrey? Yes, you want McCaffrey. And you want running backs that look like Christian McCaffrey, whether it be Aaron Jones or Austin Eckler. You want those running backs in the second round. The running back talent profile in the NFL is far superior to the average NFL running back from five years ago. The running backs are getting more and more talented and more college schemes are using running backs in the passing game. So running backs like DeAndre Swift are coming to the league better equipped to operate in the passing game. And coaches are coming from the college ranks and calling more plays where the running back goes out and runs a route as opposed to staying in for pass protection. Running back pass pro is becoming a football relic as more and more NFL offensive coordinators come to Jesus and realize getting running backs out in space in the passing game optimizes their utility, not forcing them to stay in the block. Now with a Jordan Howard who has... Very little ability in the passing game, fine. You're getting more marginal utility keeping him in the block than you are sending him out on a route. But the vast majority of running backs that are now entering the league are coming in equipped to go out and run a route and squeeze the football. This is why running back routes year over year are up. Running back target share is up. 
And the target share specifically is up at the expense of wide receivers. Wide receiver target shares on average are coming down. Running back target shares are going up. This is fueling the weekly ceiling of running backs and depressing the upside of wide receivers, further incentivizing fantasy gamers to draft running backs in the early rounds. It just It's all stacking up perfectly, like a perfect set of dominoes. It's just stacking up, and you just hit that one domino, and they all fall down, and you win a championship. I'm hoping that's what happens on underdog, and, I'm, and I was fortunate to be able to pull off the triple stack of the Eagles offense, because I think the Eagles offense is going to be prolific. I think that there's so much focus on the Dallas offense that the Eagles offense is getting overlooked. Now, in the FFPC pros versus Joes, I did stack, as I mentioned, Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper, and I wanted to stack Jarwin, got Jarwin in the underdog draft, but someone reached for Jarwin. It happens. Let them reach. Let them reach. And if I had not reached for DeAndre Swift, I could have waited around and Cam Akers would have been there. And DeAndre Swift could have easily been there as well. Fuck that up. Just like in the FFPC draft, I felt so compelled to stack Dak with Amari Cooper. I drafted him a round before I should have gone quarterback. I could have had Devontae Parker. And a round later, he was gone. But Deshaun Watson was still on the board. Oh, oh. In a singular league, you do not reach for stacks. I would have been better off drafting Devontae Parker and Deshaun Watson in a singular league on underdog or anywhere else than moving up around to get Dak Prescott. A stack is nice to have. And when you're between two quarterbacks in a particular round, you want to lean towards stacking, but not at the expense of a significantly superior value at that particular pick. So if I could reshuffle that underdog deck, I would have loved to go wide receiver in round four and grab one of these upside rookie backs in round five. But that's the one pick I wish I could have back. That's it. That's it. That's not bad. And fortunately, the podfather is here to guide you through your underdog drafts this year. If you could stack Carson Wentz and Zach Ertz, Miles Sanders, and Deshaun Jackson, do it in all formats. If you can do it reasonably, and at value. So the reason why I didn't go Clyde Edwards-Solaire is because it's much easier to stack Eagles than it is Chiefs. You got to pick at least one of your quarterbacks to stack up. Either stack him with his number one option like Dak and Amari Cooper or with a myriad of options like a Carson Wentz with a Miles Sanders and a Deshaun Jackson and a Jalen Rager. Why not? You can double triple stack because you want to crank out the maximum amount of points in those big-time Eagles shootout contests. And the best is when you have multiple NFC South quarterbacks. So on underdog, I drafted Wentz and Brady. It's great to have Brady and Teddy Bridgewater. If you go Brady and Matt Ryan, then you only need two quarterbacks. The beauty is by going a Brady and a Matt Ryan, then you only need two quarterbacks. The problem with Matt Ryan is I rarely find myself in a position to stack Falcons. The Falcon stack I've been able to pull off is Matt Ryan with Russell Gage. If I had to pick a Falcon to draft this year, it would be Matt Ryan. And Russell Gage is one of my highest owned players because I'm getting him in the final rounds each and every time. I would have got him on underdog, but I got sniped. I got sniped. Russell Gage is the perfect play on a platform like Prediction Strike. Just go to any player profiler page. Go to Russell Gage's page and you'll see invest in players on Prediction Strike. Click it. 
And prediction strike mimics the behavior of a stock market for players. So as long as Russell Gage outperforms expectations and expectations are very low, he delivers positive returns. That's the beauty of it. You look at his snap share and his routes run in the second half. 33, 26, 47, 33, 20, 32, 27, 39 routes run in the second half. Starting in week eight, he was getting at least a 50% snap share because he's the number three receiver. He's the slot receiver in Atlanta. And don't we want slot receivers? Aren't we excited that Henry Ruggs is going to be playing in the slot? Oh, Henry Ruggs in the slot. They're going to move them all around the formation. Oh, but Russell Gage is going to be the slot too. Eh. The reason why stacking is in vogue is because you want exposure to these weeks when high-octane offenses go nuclear. And it's the best when both go nuclear. Imagine if you're a Superflex best ball league with Brady and Matt Ryan in the week the Falcons play the Bucs. I mean, wow! Right? And on Underdog, I was very disappointed to not get Rob Gronkowski. Rob Gronkowski was sniped away from me. So I was hoping to stack Brady and Gronk with Wentz and everybody. And it didn't work out. It didn't work out. So there, I showed restraint, not overstacking at the expense of value because it's a singular league. But in a tournament setting, I'm moving up around to line these players up, stack them up, and maximize correlation. But in a tournament setting, because you're going against so many players, you have so many opponents, thousands of rosters, the Dak Prescott, Amari Cooper, the Julio Jones, Matt Ryan stacks are less attractive because there are so many out there. The moment your league clicks over into playoff mode, you're going against non-unique lineups. It's you against a bunch of lineups that look like you. You made the playoffs because you bet on a bunch of players exceeding expectations during the regular season. And it won't be any coincidence that a lot of your competitors have a lot of the same players. So if you make the playoffs in a tournament with Dak Prescott, Amari Cooper, Blake Jarwin as your team focal point, you're guaranteed to face off against a number of duplicate stacks. The way to get more stack variants is to stack the lesser quarterbacks. Because I found myself doing this. In drafts, the moment after I selected Amari Cooper, my next thought was, get Dak, get Dak, get Dak, get Dak. But the moment after you select DJ Moore, your next thought isn't, get Teddy Bridgewater, get Teddy Bridgewater. But that should be the case. In a tournament setting, you should be willing to reach two rounds to get Teddy Bridgewater. And if you're going to draft DJ Moore, at that point, realize I might draft three quarterbacks here because I want to reverse engineer a Panther stack. And the Panther stacks are the best because there will be fewer of them because fewer fantasy gamers are considering stacking when they draft DJ Moore than when they draft a Julio Jones or a Mike Evans or an Amari Cooper. Hell, more fantasy gamers will be considering Ben Roethlisberger when they select Juju Smith-Schuster than Teddy Bridgewater when they select DJ Moore. So the DJ Chark with Gardner Minshew stacks, the DJ Moore, Ian Thomas Curtis Samuel with Teddy Bridgewater stacks will be much less common than the Deshaun Watson, Will Fuller stacks. If you look at the rosters across this massive underdog million dollar tournament, you'll see a lot fewer Teddy Bridgewater centric stacks than you will any of the top six quarterbacks. With the possible exception of Patrick Mahomes, because so many of these Chiefs are going so early. Like with Christian McCaffrey, the cornerstone of the stack may be running back to quarterback, just like with the Panthers. If you get Christian McCaffrey, you want to get Teddy Bridgewater. Just like with the Eagles, if you get Miles Sanders, you want Carson Wentz. And just like with the Chiefs, if you get Clyde Edwards-Alaire, there's more incentive to target Patrick Mahomes. 
you get more variance at a better value if you put cheap quarterbacks on top of your stacks than the established QB ones. So the general rule for stacking across all types of drafts, whether it be tournament or singular leagues, start robust running back and try to back your way into cheap stacks. And when you go to any of these late round upside wide receivers that we know are going to be commanding a significant snap share and running a bunch of routes for a smash worthy offense, like a Russell Gage, like a Traquan Smith, like a Randall Cobb, go ahead and invest in these players now on Prediction Strike. And when you do, use the promo code UNDERWORLD because they need to know the Podfather sent you. And Patrick Murphy knows the Podfather's been sending him fantasy leaguers in need of assistance. He's the best in the business at managing other people's fantasy teams. And he's also one of the masterminds, player profilers, world-famous draft kit cheat sheet. And as I mentioned, I drafted Austin Hooper, Blake Jarwin, Ian Thomas in a recent underdog draft. And I selected those particular tight ends in those particular rounds for a very specific reason. Breakout tight ends are one of the great fantasy hacks. One of the best ways to capture upside variance on the field is to get as many TJ Hawkinson's and Mike Gusecki's, Blake Jarwin's, and John U. Smith's, and Ian Thomas's as you can possibly gather. And that's why in underdog draft after underdog draft, you'll see me drafting two expensive quarterbacks with three late round upside tight ends. That's been my approach, and it was recommended to me by Patrick Murphy, the Fantasy Football King. Check him out, fantasyfootballking.com, and be sure to follow him at FFTheKing on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program, his second voyage on the USS Underworld Pod. It is Patrick Murphy. He is the fantasy football king. He is one of the minds behind the fantasy football draft kit, and in particular, our extreme cheat sheet. From fantasyfootballking.com, Patrick Murphy, talk to me. Hey, Matt. Hey, I'm super excited to be here. This is like like my Super Bowl for podcasts. This is my big deal. I'm a fan, right? I'm it's just cool to even talk to you, right? Being listening to your podcast for the last three years and being able to have a conversation with you. Now we talk all the time about the draft kit and the rankings, but it's good to record one, send it out to the people. Yeah, yeah. It's for me and it's for the people. I eat at my own restaurant, right? And you're one of the chefs at this restaurant. I was just in a draft, the FFPC's Pros versus Joe's, and I drafted straight off the cheat sheet, just boom, 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 straight off the cheat sheet. And I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. First pick, the 107, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. You are insistent that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire should be drafted in the top 10. And not just the top 10, top 5. You have Clyde Edwards-Hilaire as the number 5 player for fantasy football. Explain yourself. (laughs) So I was actually fading... Edwards Alaire before Damian Williams opted out because you know I was a big believer in Damian Williams and I thought they were going to split carries, but I'm not a huge believer in DeAndre Washington or Darwin Thompson or Darrell Williams. Right, this is the first round draft capital. This is the first pick the Chiefs made. They're going to give him. I think he's going to get 18 to 20 touches a game really quickly. Right, last year the Chiefs gave their running backs 24 touches a game. So if you give 18 to 20 of those to Clyde Edwards Alaire, that's 300 touches the year for the year. Last year, Damian Williams averaged about 
0.95 fantasy points per touch. You got to assume Edwards Alaire with his receiving ability is going to get more than that. If he just gets one point per touch, I know it's kind of a rudimentary analysis to just put it on per touch, but you know, he hasn't played in the NFL yet. That gets him to about 20 points a game. If I do the math, it's 300 fantasy points. Isn't 300 times one 300? <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's so razor close between Edwards Hilaire and Miles Sanders that I was drafting on the underdog platform a couple days earlier, and I went Miles Sanders. So you can go either way. It's very close, right? It's razor close between these two players. But if we have to make a decision, we have players operating in similar roles on high-octane offenses. It's just that the Chiefs' offense is that much better than the Eagles' offense, and that's really the difference, right? Yeah, and Boston Scott's a bigger threat than anyone on the Chiefs right now, right? Like, I, I don't think Boston Scott's going to get, like, a 30% snap share. The Chiefs are an elite offense. I mean, they're one of the best offenses of the past decade. So to get pieces in that offense is what you want to do. I mean, Reed has often used bell cow running backs. We're going to see it again this year. Glad he's, he's going to put up a lot of fantasy points. He's super safe. Unless you're really high in DeAndre Washington, who wasn't even with the team last year. I mean, every every move they make shows they don't really like Darwin Thompson, right? They just keep signing guys and drafting guys over him. Darrell Williams is undrafted. So who's going to take these touches? It's going to be Clyde Edwards-Solaire. It's going to be Clyde Edwards-Solaire. I went robust running back, Nick Chubb, Leonard Fournette. Pretty standard, really. Just the standard podfather, robust running back opening. Nothing to see here. Nothing interesting. Just like a chess master doing the most prototypical opening. And then the more interesting moves happen later. It was best ball, and I decided not going to devote a roster spot to a third quarterback. Need to get two elite fantasy quarterbacks, Prescott and Matt Ryan. That's the path. And found Darius Geis was still available at the 707. So in a round where I'm typically going quarterback and tight end, that frozen pond, the exception is Darius Geis. If you're going to draft one frozen pond running back, if it's not DeAndre Swift and he goes in the fourth, fifth round and he's not there in the sixth, seventh, and eighth rounds, it's got to be Darius Geis if you had to pick one frozen pond running back, right? Right. I mean, so when you're drafting in the sixth, seventh, eighth round, you need to be an optimist, right? You need to look at a player's ceiling because their floors, no one really cares about the floor, right? What you need is guys who are going to turn themselves into an equivalent of second, third round picks. That's how you win your league. And when you look at Geis, he has a higher ceiling than any running back around him in that range. By far, it's not even really close, right? He's the only one who could potentially return like first round value. He's got the talent, right? I mean, he's as talented as anyone who's been drafted outside of like Barkley in the last few years. It's just an injury history. And when you're playing a weekly game, we're not playing season, you know, this isn't a best ball, right? When you're drafting, well, yours is the best ball. When you're drafting in single QB though, you can just bench a player if he gets injured. You're not going to take a zero if Geis gets hurt. So you're swinging for the fences here, right? And in best ball, you want the spike weeks. Geis is the only player or at least running back in that range that can actually deliver him. So you got to take some on some injury risk to get the upside. Couldn't agree more. Then I pounded tight end. Hawkinson, boom. Austin Hooper, boom. Ian Thomas, boom. Upside, stability, upside. I like to alternate upside and stability, upside and stability. You saw that with my running backs. You see that with this tight end core. Do you like me getting three tight ends in that round 9 to 12 zone? Yeah, so every year you see breakouts, tight ends, come out of nowhere. Right, Last year we had Waller. We had Mark Andrews, maybe not out of nowhere, but people saw it, but he was a late round tight end. Even Austin Hooper. 
right? And the challenge with drafting these early tight ends is even though Kittle and Kelsey will deliver the value that you expect, it's really hard to compete with a team who picked up almost equivalent value in the 10th round. And we almost see that every single year at the tight end position with players emerging. You can go back to Tyler Eifert. You can go back to George Kittle. You can go back to Travis Kelsey. These guys all emerged as late round picks and produced as if they were early round picks. So the challenge every year is, well, how do we identify those late round tight ends? Right. And you, there's different things you can look at, right? Like draft capital. JJ Zacharyson did a whole thing on breakout tight ends. Some draft capital was a big one. But in reality, you just need to throw a bunch of, uh, you need to get a bunch of lottery tickets and go for the guys that you consider of high upside, like Hawkinson. I can't believe Hawkinson and Goddard and Gasecki and Noah Fant are considered lottery tickets. We know they're good. We know they're really good players. And with the exception of Noah Fant, they're at worst the number three options on their teams. John o. Smith could be the number two receiver in Tennessee. He's a no-doubter. We know John o. Smith to be an exceptional playmaker at the tight end position. We know TJ Hawkinson is that guy. We know Noah Fant is that guy. So why? Why, 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 why? Why would you pick a player two or three rounds earlier like a Darren Waller or a Tyler Higbee who's actually an inferior player to guys you can get three or four rounds later? It makes no sense, especially, especially Darren Waller. So many fantasy gamers are so obsessed with the yeah buts, yeah but. Yeah, but yeah, but what about yeah, but what about yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but what about yeah, but what about yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but what about yeah, but what about except Darren Waller. There's this cognitive dissonance where no one wants to acknowledge that they signed Jason Witten in the offseason. It's this open secret. They, they signed Jason Witten, but we like Darren Waller. He helped us win fantasy football championships completely out of nowhere last year, and he might return to anonymity this year. We're so enamored by the guy that helped us win championships last year that we just need to all agree to not acknowledge reality, to just pretend it never happened, that the Raiders didn't draft Henry Ruggs in the first round. The, the Raiders didn't sign Jason Witten. None of that happened. We're just going to run it back with Darren Waller in 2020 as if nothing's changed. And a lot has changed. A lot of people think Darren Waller was a compiler last year. Like, oh, he was the only guy there. He was just an inefficient compiler. He had a better yards per target than Mark Andrews. Second in yards per target. Um, he was three in yards per pass route. Uh, he exceeded a 90% snapshot in like almost every one of his games. They've only added really rookies to compete with him. I don't care about Jason Witten. That guy's ancient. Why don't you care about Jason Witten? Because Darren Waller was efficient. He was their, be he was their most valuable target they had last year. When you're second, I mean, when you're more efficient than Mark Andrews on a per-target basis, you're pretty good at your position. He's killing it. He was second in yak to only George Kittle. I mean, the guy's an animal out there. We shouldn't, we shouldn't just say he came out of nowhere. It's easy to distrust him. But every efficiency metric you look at says Darren Waller's the real deal. He's going he, to get to another 90 balls. If anything, he's a, a positive regression candidate. He caught 90 balls and got three TDs. He got seven TDs. He's right there with Kelsey and Kittle last year as the top 10 ends. So I, I like Waller. I don't draft tight ends in the middle rounds. Um, but like in in the fishbowl, for instance, where you get double the points for receptions, he's going to outscore Mark Andrews. He's going to catch 50 more passes than Mark Andrews. What? What? Mark Andrews didn't exceed a 60% snap share all year last year. Right? And I know Hayden Hurst left, but Nick Boyle's the guy who led the team in snaps last year. Not Hayden Hurst. They like Nick Boyle's blocking. Oh. He's going to catch 50 more passes than Andrews. Darren Waller's going to deliver value. 
That being said, I still don't really draft in that much because I don't draft mid-range tight ends. I just don't do that. I don't think it's the way to way you win your league, and they typically bust. But uh, I think Waller's probably the best value at tight end. Oh, my God. I couldn't disagree more. But I do agree that when you're structuring your draft, you need to focus on late-round tight ends because when the tight end breaks out, they break out big. It's a damn breaking when a tight end finally breaks through. So there's real asymmetrical breakout upside. So tight ends deliver this real asymmetrical breakout upside that other that that you know that you know relative that year to year breakout upside that other positions just can't compete with. So you're incentivized to draft multiple tight ends in the later rounds, right? Like you shouldn't just draft one tight end. You should draft multiple tight ends, right? Even in traditional leagues. Yeah, I mean, the way to win your league is by hitting on one of those tight ends, right? If you had Mark Andrews or Dalen Waller last year, or even Austin Hooper, if you hit on one of those guys last year, you had a massive advantage over anyone who took a tight end in the first five rounds. Sorry, so that, and the opportunity cost is so low in those later rounds. Like, go look at one of your draft boards from uh, a previous year. Guys after the sixth round, you drop most of them, right? Those aren't players you keep. So it doesn't matter if you draft some players who don't hit in the 12th round at tight end. That's not a big deal. Right. The fact is, if you just got to try to hit the one that does. And this year, I think Hawkinson, Fant, Irv Smith. I mean, there's a ton of options there, but I think Hawkinson's the big one that we're probably going to. Irv Smith's moving up the cheat sheet. Why do you like Irv Smith? There's no one else to throw the ball to there. I mean, in a year with, uh, you know, we're, we want to target chemistry this year because to the lack of offseason work, new players have and rookies have. And with Stefan Diggs leaving, we have vacated targets and the players coming in to replace them aren't really don't have chemistry. Like Justin Jefferson's great, but he's, he doesn't have any chemistry with Kirk Cousins. So Adam Thielen can only get targeted so much. Another guy we're really high on. Um, Irv Smith, he's a talented guy. He was good last year, right? He was efficient. He's going to get targets. I think Kyle Rudolph's time is, is passing. Um, so, yeah, I think Irv Smith could definitely, especially something happens Rudolph, could definitely break out this year. I'm fine dismissing Kyle Rudolph to draft an Irv Smith in round 13. I feel a little less comfortable dismissing a Jason Witten to draft a Darren Waller in round five. You at least agree with that? Uh, yeah. Like I said, I'm not drafting Waller in round five, right? Like I'm not going to do right. it because I don't draft tight ends there. But I do think I do think Waller is going to surprise this year. And- God! Okay. Back to my fantasy team. <laughs> Here's the wide receiver core. Amari in the fourth, DK Metcalf in the fifth, and then waited until the 13th and drafted six consecutive wide receivers. Anthony Miller, Justin Jefferson, Denzel Mims, Hunter Renfro, T. Higgins, Russell Gage. I alternated high floor and high ceiling, high floor and high ceiling, bunch of possession receivers and a bunch of upside rookies. Your thoughts? I mean, yeah, that's what you want to do at the end of a best ball draft, right? That's the roster construction you want to shoot for. If you're spending your early draft capital on running backs, right, you need to get the spike week. You need to load up at receivers, right? It's either capital or the count. So since you spent the draft capital at running back, you load up on the receiver numbers. And then you got a couple guys in there with spike week potential, right? Like T. Higgins, spike week potential. Denzel Mims, I mean, those guys can definitely blow up. Hunter Renfro was great at the end of last season. He had great efficiency numbers too. So he's going to be a nice floor play playing the slot in Oakland. Just another guy that can cannibalize targets from Darren Waller. (laughs) (laughs) I love the growth and development of Hunter Renfro this year. If you like rugs and you like Renfro and you like Waller in two QB and Superflex, don't you have to respect what Derek Carr could produce this year? To a degree. 
<laughs> I guess he's a high floor quarterback, right? Um, That's pretty good. It's a second quarterback in Superflex, third quarterback in two QB. He's a safe. He's a safe pick. He's a safe pick. I think um, they have a good O line there too. I know you're you're a fan of Brandon Thorne, his rankings. He got the Raiders at fourth in the O line rankings. Ooh. So he's going to be protected. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think this could be a solid year for Carr. I wouldn't draft him in single QB because I don't think the ceiling's there. But in two QB, you're looking at floors, and I think he's a solid pick. So we know Clyde Edwards-Hilaire has moved all the way up to the number five position on our world-famous draft kit cheat sheet, the rankings powered by Patrick Murphy and the fantasy football king. Which guy has moved up the board most rapidly, not named Clyde Edwards-Hilaire? One guy we have above consensus that we kept moving up is Leonard Fournette. That's right. That's right. That's right. We should mention Leonard Fournette because we're very bullish on Leonard Fournette, and he's an easy player to mock across the industry. Oh, we're going to call him Uncle Lenny, and because he has a nickname, that means he's not good. If he has a mockable nickname, you don't draft him. Typical hipster fantasy gaming 101 right there, and you can gain an edge by ignoring that noise. The hipster noise. Yeah, we're definitely contrarian on Leonard Fournette. You know, it's it's tough to uh, there's a lot of really smart analysts who are down on Leonard Fournette. But there's also a lot of smart analysts that are bullish on Leonard Fournette. Yes, you. <laughs> they just don't have the biggest microphones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's very polarizing. He's extremely polarizing. And I think we can narrow it down to one reason. Right. It's the passing down work. Right. If um, they're going to have a lot of negative game script in Jacksonville, I think they have the lowest over win total in Vegas right now. So they're going to be bad. Um, but Leonard Fournette last year got all the passing down work, right? He had a crazy he was second in weighted opportunities. If he gets that again, he's going to be great. Second in weighted opportunities. Second in weighted opportunities to Christian McCaffrey. He's, he's going to have a ton of positive regression, right? He had three TDs. He was 50th in total TDs and second in weighted opportunities. <laughs> you, you don't need to be an expert at analysis to figure out he's going to get a few more TDs this year. Like, come on. It's just a no-brainer play, man. It's just a no-brainer. He has the speed score. He has the college resume, the draft capital, and he's maintained a primary back role all these years. So we know that he's not bad. He's not bad. Is he great? No, but he's not bad. And not bad in a true bell cow role is a guy you want in the third round. Well, the argument against him is he's inefficient, right? So, But if you look at it last year, he faced over seven defenders in the box of the top 20 running backs and touches he faced who was the only one to face more than seven defenders in the box on average and in the end of the day if you look at yards created per touch he had a higher yards created per touch than ezekiel elliott alvin Kamara, and christian mccaffrey so he wasn't as inefficient as people think he was he suffered more from an inexperienced jags o-line that's going to improve this year and because an inexperienced passing game with Gardner Minshew, they were stacking the box. That should also improve this year. So uh, Leonard Fournette's going to be more efficient. If he doesn't get the passing down work, I know you're not worried about it, but if he doesn't get it, he's going to—he's probably going to struggle to deliver value. But if he gets the passing down work, he's a first-round pick. That's the thing. That's the thing. So it's really how much do you like Chris Thompson? You think he's a cut candidate, which is why you're so high on, why we're so high on Leonard Fournette. If you can somehow get your hands on two top 10 running backs— this year. Like last year, if you had Dalvin Cook and Christian McCaffrey, you win. It doesn't matter the other players on your roster, you win if you have those two guys. If you can just hit on two top 10 running backs, you're teed up to win. You have a competitive advantage on the field. And Leonard Fournette has a super smooth path to top 10 running back this year. A lot smoother than most 
backs in the league. And the good news is the Jaguars have already taken Gardner Minshew off the COVID-19 injured reserve. Like, I was right. I mean, can you believe it? Of all the quarterbacks in the league, for the Podfather to predict the first quarterback to develop COVID-19, the open-ended question was put to me, and it was Gardner Minshew, and it was correct. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's too good. I'm too good at this. Somebody stop me. Someone from the government needs to come and lock this microphone, somehow prevent me from getting in front of live microphones, and being this right. It's hard, man. It's hard being this right. I mean, it feels so good. But for the mortals out there, I don't know how they even believe it. I barely believe it. It's right up there with Goblin over Evans, man. It's, it might be your best take ever. It's just Gardner Minshew. It's right there. <laughs> Minshew would be the first to contract COVID-19. All right, besides Leonard Fournette, who else is moving up boards? When fantasy gamers are perusing our cheat sheet, not only is it the best cheat sheet in all of fantasy football, it's our best cheat sheet of all time. Therefore, it is the best cheat sheet in the history of fantasy football. Who else is moving up? A.J. Green, right? We're well above consensus on him. We just keep moving him up. He's always available in those middle rounds, man. Yeah, I mean, I think you went in your best ball draft that you just shared like seventh or eighth round. He was very available. I just happened to be drafting quarterback and tight end and Darius Geis in those slots. But yeah, he was there. Last time he played in 2018, he averaged over like eight games, 18.5 fantasy points. That would have been good for wide receiver three last year. Right. So the last time he played, he was his top five receiver in the NFL. Which year was that? 2018. That was 2018. That was like 2016. That was 2018. That was fairly recently. Yeah. So you can tell. I mean, I get it. Right. AJ Fleen has a, AJ Green has a floor problem. Right. He, he could get injured. The, uh, he hasn't played in a year, blah, all that stuff. But when you're drafting in the seventh and eighth round, I don't care about a player's floor. Right? I don't care if he busts. The fact is I'm looking at their ceiling and his ceiling is a wide receiver one. Right. And there's no other wide receivers. There's very few at that range that that we know can hit that ceiling. So that's why why that's why AJ Green's so appealing. It's because he offers upside at, at a at a round where there just isn't a ton. He's only thirty two years old. He's not thirty three. And that makes a difference. If you look at, say, Andre Johnson, big muscled up prototypical X receiver at age 32, 181 targets, 1,400 yards, and five touchdowns. Now, his production collapsed the following year, and his age 33 season fell to 936 yards. But age 32, Andre Johnson, 1,400 yards. Other receivers like Larry Fitzgerald, you know, are productive even longer. But A.J. Green is still in the wide receiver one window for a player with his body type. He's six months older than Julio Jones. That's it. I mean, Julio Jones is a second-round pick. And Julio Jones relies more on fast-twitch explosiveness than A.J. Green. A.J. Green is more of a ballerina than he is a sports car. So you would think that a wide receiver that wins with body position and nuance like A.J. Green could play at a high level even longer than Julio Jones. And yet, A.J. Green, who has produced at a similar level to Julio Jones throughout his career— He's being drafted six, seven rounds after Julio Jones. It's crazy. He uh, last year the third round. He was a third round pick before he uh, had the foot injury last year. Third round. It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I love that we are more bullish on Clyde Edwards-Helaire and Leonard Fournette and AJ Green. They're all very different players in very different situations, but the process is right. What about the players that are moving down our board most rapidly? And you can't say Damian Williams. That doesn't count. <laughs> uh, yeah, so 
McCole Hardman is someone that's definitely been moving down and we're way below consensus on. So a lot of people like McCole Hardman because he was extremely efficient last year. I think he was uh, number one in yards per target. Oh, wow. McCole Hardman, number one in yards per target. Got to get my hands on this guy because those two targets he's going to get in week one, one of them go for a touchdown. Didn't you know, Patrick? If he gets two, that'd be pretty good for him because in his last nine games last year, he got 11 targets. What? That's it? He had 11 targets in his last nine games. What? what? So you're basically getting a guy who's going to average one target. I mean, maybe he's triple that, three targets a game. In his final five games, he ran less than 10 routes, three out of the five games. Where are the targets coming from? Demarcus Robinson? I don't know. I don't know. I think Demarcus Robinson will command more targets this year than McCole Hardman. I don't understand it. He's Tyreek Hill's backup. What is the fascination with this guy? You think Tyreek Hill's going to get hurt? Is that what you're betting on? You're drafting a handcuff wide receiver in the single digit rounds? What is this madness? It's a handcuff wide receiver. It's it's crazy. Yeah, he'll be good in a couple of years. No, just next year. It's not going to happen this year. It might happen because Tyreek Hill could get hurt. Sammy Watkins could get hurt, but you don't draft players like we saw last year with Darrell Henderson and Darwin Thompson. You don't draft these players in the single-digit rounds hoping for injury. That's not the way to go. Those players are more often than not dropped in week two and three. And these really high-efficiency players are just really difficult to predict their starts. Right? But Cole Harmon's not going to be predictable. When you're getting that few targets, opportunity is predictable. Efficiency is not. So every week, you're going to have to make a call. Even if he's getting four targets a game, you're going to have to make a call. Is this the week where he breaks one for 60 yards and a touchdown? Like, you don't know. If you can get him in the double-digit rounds in best ball, it's reasonable. But in a traditional league, you're hoping for a Tyreek Hill injury in week one? That's the path for him to stay on your roster? In a traditional league, what is the point? Give me one more guy. We're more bullish on than consensus. Devontae Parker? Yes, we got to talk about Devontae Parker because I had the opportunity to draft Devontae Parker in this pros versus Joes, and I actually selected DK Metcalf, even though we're higher on Parker, knowing that I could get Parker in the following round because we're just so much more bullish on Parker than consensus. Why is that? Yeah, so last year after Preston, I mean, probably everyone's heard the split, but last year after Preston Williams tore his ACL from week, I believe, 9 to 17, Parker was wide receiver three in points per game, right? So again, we're chasing that upside. Now, Williams is back. So the argument against him is, well, when Williams is healthy, Parker was wide receiver 36. But it's a little more complex than that, right? The whole Dolphins offense ascended as the season progressed, as team chemistry built, right? So for the first seven games, they averaged 200 yards passing a game. The last nine games, they averaged 277 yards a game. And Parker was part of that. Parker broke out. And then they rewarded him with a big contract. The Dolphins saw what you saw, which fantasy gamers are ignoring. It's like the opposite. It's the anti-Darren Waller corollary. It's like nothing has changed in Miami. And yet fantasy gamers are pretending Devontae Parker didn't happen. A lot has changed in Oakland. And they're pretending nothing has changed with Darren Waller. I feel like I'm living in a bizarro world every single day I wake up and turn on my computer. Stop disparaging Darren Waller. <laughs> I can't hate you're triggering me over here. It's Darren Waller, these random jabs at Darren Waller. We're talking about Devontae Parker here. So and Devontae Parker's great. So uh I mean everything you said is right. They gave him the contract. Um the whole offense ascended as the year progressed. So I think what you're gonna see is Parker won't be wide receiver three this year. Like he will suffer as targets go to Preston Williams, but he's being drafted at wide receiver 24. It's crazy. So I would say he's being drafted as floor. 
Um, and his ceiling probably he's going to be around. He could be easily wide receiver 10, something like that. So uh, he's a very safe pick at wide receiver 24. You're getting a guy at his floor. Explain why he will likely outproduce DK Metcalf. So Metcalf to me, even though he was actually really consistent in fantasy points last year, I think a lot of that had to do with him and his low target games. He just got touchdowns, right? So the problem with the Seahawks offense is they run the ball when they're up and they're projected to win a decent amount of games. The game script's going to be positive and they're going to be very run heavy and very slow paced. So there's going to be weeks where DK Metcalf just doesn't see the amount of targets you want him to see. So, and like I said before, efficiency is difficult to predict. Opportunity is. So DK Metcalf's going to see less opportunity on a weekly basis than Parker. Parker, on the other hand, Miami's going to be trailing a lot, right? I mean, they're going to be better than last year, but they're still going to have plenty of negative game script. They're going to be airing out the ball, and you're going to see Parker get tons of targets. So that's why I like Parker a little bit more. Metcalf's solid, but, you know, Parker is, uh, he's been a talent that we've been waiting to ascend for a long time. Last year on this podcast, I was a truth around Devontae Parker. You were. You were. Wow. Wow. Right? One of the best takes of the year. Yeah, that was a good one for me. That was a hit. That was a good one. That was a really good one. All right, give me one more guy that we're more bearish on the consensus besides Mecole Hardman. All right, uh, Le'Veon Bell, we're way, beyond, way below the consensus. Really? We are? I feel like it's fair where we have Le'Veon Bell nestled between Carson and Akers. It makes sense to me. People like the opportunity he's going to see, right? Or supposedly he's going to see, right? He's a bell cow. He caught 66 passes last year. So his opportunities there, and people like to draft opportunity. The challenge is he was just insanely inefficient, right? 3.2 true yards per carry, um, 0.97 yards per created per touch. And his snap share dropped every – as the second half of the year, his snap share dropped considerably. Gase is clearly not sold. The whole coaching staff isn't sold on him. I mean, think about this, right? He caught 66 passes. That's more than four a game. And he only averaged 14 points per game. I mean, how do you even do that? How <laughs> do you catch that many balls as a running back and only average 14 points per game? That's like a, you call it a riddle. It's like, a, yeah, it's like a riddle. What is that? So I don't, yeah, I'm just, he's a high, he is a high floor play, but again, I'm not drafting high floor guys in those rounds, right? I mean, I mean he, drafting Le'Veon Bell is like saying, I don't want to get last. It's not playing for first. It's playing not to get last. You're trying to hit on a running back in the top 10. Le'Veon Bell's path to being a top 10 running back this year is very narrow, almost non-existent. <laughs> Doesn't exist. <laughs> Unless he gets traded. His path to, is to get traded. Who's this year's signature league-winning quarterback for fantasy football? So it, it's it's hard for, for quarterback this year. Like I don't think we're going to have a Pat Mahomes or Lamar Jackson. I think we've been really lucky the last two years to see crazy seasons like that from late-round quarterbacks. Um, but when you're swinging for upside, there's a couple different guys. I mean, the obvious one is Stafford. Everyone loves Stafford, right? He, he throws the ball deep. He has a great A-dot. Um, and and he, in the games he played last year, he was a great quarterback before he got hurt. So I think Stafford's going to be good. Um, the other one that we've been moving up a lot is Cam Newton, right? As we see these opt-outs on the Patriots defense. Thank you for saying it. I think Cam Newton's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the rushing upside, he's playing on an incentive-laden contract. We're seeing all these opt-outs on the Patriots defense. I mean, the original concern with Cam Newton was, well, he doesn't need to do anything. Now he needs to do some stuff. So he's going to have to score some points. And rushing, I mean, the real key to breakout quarterbacks, or at least late-round ones, is rushing upside. I mean, you can try to predict the TD variance, but that's harder to do. If Cam Newton rushes for 500 yards, he's going to be a top eight, top five quarterback in that range. Um, and if he throws too, I'm a little concerned about his weapons, but whatever. He's, I think in his QB one season, his like number one receiver was Ted Ginn or something. So he doesn't really need great weapons to. And his best season as a pro was his rookie season. That was his only season where he was able to crest 4,000 yards. 
one 4,000-yard season on the entire Cam Newton resume was the final year with Steve Smith in his prime in 2011. And then Steve Smith leaves for Baltimore, and you see the yardage deteriorate. You see the rushing yards deteriorate. But if you go and look at what Josh McDaniels did with Tim Tebow in Denver, had Tebow played 16 games, he would have rushed for approximately 800 yards. So we're talking about 800-yard ceiling, 800-yard rushing upside for Cam Newton with the best weaponry he's had since his rookie year. Since his rookie year. In that rookie year, it was Steve Smith, it was Brandon LaFell, and it was Greg Olson and D'Angelo Williams out of the backfield. This year, it's Julian Edelman, who is not at Steve Smith's level when he was on Carolina, but a lesser version of Steve Smith. Certainly, if you compare Julian Edelman to the number one receivers that Cam Newton was accustomed to in Carolina, Devin Funchess, Ted Ginn, Kelvin Benjamin, it's a major upgrade. And then the number two and number three receivers are an upgrade as well. Cam Newton's never had a number two, three receivers as good as Nikhil Harry and Mohamed Sanu. And I think he's also going to get more out of Devin Aziazi than most people expect. And James White, the second best satellite back that Cam Newton will have ever had in his career, other than Christian McCaffrey. Cam Newton is really only able to fully enjoy McCaffrey in, in McCaffrey's rookie year. So you bequeath to Cam Newton the best offensive line of his career. One of, if not the best receiving core of his career and one of the best satellite backs he's had in his career in a year where he's been working out more vigorously in the offseason with something to prove, he would be the guy. If there's a guy that's going to break into the top six, it's going to be Cam Newton. It's all about health for him. If he's healthy, he's going to break into the top six, basically, right? I mean, every year we see a healthy Cam Newton, he's good. And the years where we see an unhealthy Cam Newton, he's disappointed. So we're getting a little bit of recency bias on Cam Newton because he struggled with health the last couple of years. He struggled with health and he struggled with weapons. One of the worst offensive lines in Carolina, one of the worst receiving cores. That matters, man. Everything is dependent on everything on a football field. You can't be a great quarterback in this league without good receivers. You can't have the stone worst receivers and be one of the best quarterbacks. It's impossible. And you can't be one of the best receivers with a stone worst quarterback. Just ask Larry Fitzgerald how he did with Ryan Lindley at quarterback. That ain't it, man. And look at Tom Brady when his best receiver was Troy Brown. He wasn't a top 12 fantasy quarterback in those seasons. And Larry Fitzgerald was far from a WR1 in his prime. In his prime, he was robbed of those years of his prime because Ryan Lindley was the quarterback. For Christ's sake, Cam Newton is hungry and Cam Newton has one of, if not the best supporting cast of his career. It's wheels up. We just moved him up in the in the cheat sheet. We just got to keep moving him up, move him up, just keep moving him up, moving him up. Because you need that Konami code to really smash in fantasy football. We know that. We know that. You can have Tom Brady and Matt Ryan and Carson Wentz, and they can be prolific. They can post 5,000-yard seasons with 30-plus touchdowns. But Cam Newton has the secret code to surpass those guys and break in to the Lamar Jackson club. I don't think anyone's breaking. <laughs> he's not, he's not going to be Lamar Jackson club. At least get to the door, the exterior of the Lamar Jackson club. Like, he can knock on the door. The bouncer's there. They won't let him in. He can look in the window. But he can at least approach it and say, this is an interesting spot you guys have. I can't get in, but I'm at least knocking on the door. If you're in a traditional league, why not Cam Newton? If it doesn't work out, he's not healthy, or or McDaniels can't figure out how to use him, okay, so what? Go grab Teddy and stream. Whatever. But you want upside at quarterback in single quarterback leagues. 
Cam Newton should be a strong target. I think Miami week one, right? And they have Miami week one. They have Miami week one. God damn it, they have Miami week one. Miami on the schedule twice. Jets on the schedule twice. Yes, please. Yes, please. Early season schedule matters. It really does. I do get chased off players that have wicked difficult sections of their schedule. It freaks me out, man. It freaks me out to know that I'm going to invest in Josh Allen, especially in a draft master format where I can't drop him after week seven when the schedule starts to ratchet up and become impossible. I have to have him for the full season. I don't want that, man. I don't want that. I just want Josh Allen for those early season games and then pivot off of it. That's what I want to do with Josh Allen. And the opposite is true with a similar quarterback to Josh Allen, Daniel Jones. It's just flipped where Daniel Jones' schedule is impossible at the beginning of the season. When you look at the schedule, does it chase you off a lot of these Giants players in fantasy football, especially traditional leagues where you can add drop? Uh, Mainly just Daniel Jones. Right, because quarterback is probably the most predictable streaming position. Um, you can, you know, you know. I mean, there's no reason to draft Daniel Jones in a single QB league because what are you going to hold him for three to four weeks? I mean, there's no reason to stash Daniel Jones QB 15 or whatever he's being drafted at. So I'm not drafting him anywhere because early season schedule is the main. That's like the first thing you look at when you're drafting QBs. Steelers, Bears, 49ers, Rams, Cowboys. Uh, it's vicious. It's a vicious schedule. He's on. Un- he's undraftable. <laughs> That's vicious. He's undraftable. Three of those games are on the road. It's absolutely brutal. No concerns for Saquon Barkley facing that schedule to start the season. Not really, because Saquon can c- get his catches right, and that that kind of boosts his value. And also, Saquon has that ability to hit a home run on any play. Right, he's that kind of an athletic back where you know he's almost almost matchup proof just because of the volume he's going to receive and the way he gets that volume. If you look at Christian McCaffrey last year. Like, was there a matchup that scared you with Christian McCaffrey? No, he lit it up in every single matchup. I think Saquon's not quite that level, but he's close to that level and he gets his points through reception. So actually, I mean, sometimes when you face these elite defenses, they uh, they get to the quarterback so fast they have to dump it off to Barkley, right? So I would more, more worry about like a Darius Slayton or something like that. Some of those receivers for the Giants. Barkley's going to get his, I mean... It, I don't think there's a real other option at number two overall, unless you want to go like Zeke. Mm. Um, but I would, I think Barkley has carries too much upside to go for Zeke there. Yeah, because Saquon Barkley could be this year's Christian McCaffrey, right? Christian McCaffrey was nine points better than the second running back. To give you an example, Michael Thomas, that, that's the gap between Michael Thomas and Michael Gallup. Oh. Right? That's the gap from Travis Kelsey to Delaney Walker. What? That was the one to two gap. McCaffrey scored more, three points per game more than any running back I could find in the last seven years. Gurley's big season, David Johnson's big season, Barkley's big rookie season. McCaffrey was three points per game or more better than every single one of them last year. Like, he was unbelievably good. And the schedule is absolutely brutal because beyond these first five games, beyond these vicious first five games, the Eagles, Buccaneers, and Eagles again. And the Eagles and Buccaneers have two of the most stout run defenses in the NFL. Barkley do, Barkley only faces the, the 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 run defenses that the Giants face. The Giants have one of the most difficult run game schedules in the league. And it's only later in the season when they face the Bengals and the Cardinals that it starts to ease up and then of course, week 16, fantasy Super Bowl week, the Giants face the Ravens. So that's 
just what? It's the reason why Saquon Barkley won't be Christian McCaffrey this year because he will benefit from the Jason Garrett effect. I mean, under Jason Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, 21 rush attempts per game, close to 100 rushing yards per game, 48 touchdowns in his career under Jason Garrett. Jason Garrett is a run-run-pass coach, and you want Barkley getting fed in all phases because he can break off a long run. He's going to be active in the passing game regardless, so if he can maximize the number of carries he's going to get on top of that, he could lead the league in weighted opportunities. It's very easy to see with Jason Garrett, Saquon Barkley leading the league in weighted opportunities. It's just that the schedule is so brutal that in those opportunities, he's not going to be as efficient compared to other running backs facing much softer schedules. And it pretty much all comes out the wash, and he's the number two player in fantasy football right now in all formats. So all that is to say Saquon Barkley is what he is. <laughs> There's no change. Generational talent. He's too good. He's too good to fade. I don't care who he's facing. He's too good to fade. So at quarterback, you think that Cam Newton fits the profile of a late-round league winner. What about at running back? I'm going to go with Jonathan Taylor um, because for a couple reasons. I think he's actually very difficult to draft at ADP right now just because I think he'll struggle early on as he's fighting for touches with Marlon Mack and Nahi Mines. But he's so much more talented than them. I think by week eight or nine, you know, he shrugs them off and he becomes the workhorse in that backfield. He starts getting an 80% snap share. And behind... I think uh, Brandon Thorne had him the third best O-line, right? Yeah. So you got the Colts there with the third best O-line. You got Phillip Rivers, who all he does is throw to his running backs. Jonathan Taylor could be easily someone who's ranked re- weekly in the top five come fantasy playoff season. And when you think about league winners, you think about those guys who carry you through the playoffs, who carry you to and fr- through the playoffs. And that's what Jonathan Taylor is going to be. So it's tough to draft him because you're going to have to weather probably the first five to six weeks of the season as that gets ironed out. Think like Miles Sanders last year. You just kind of had to work through it. But a much better version, a higher upside version of Miles Sanders last year and a guy that you should consider trading for. If you don't get him, make sure you put out offers to acquire Jonathan Taylor at the end of September. Go get him and get him after the first couple weeks. Don't wait too long and get too cute. Yeah, because he's going to break off some runs. He's going to have some big games on like 10 touches. He's going to be one of those guys where he gets like eight touches, 120 yards and a touchdown. It's rookie season Nick Chubb all over again. Only better. Only better. Now, who is that guy at wide receiver? So I got Terry McLaurin for that guy, right? When we look for the receivers who are going to break out, what you do, you know, this is what everyone basically does. You take the look at the really super efficient guys, right? And then you say, well, do they have a path to more opportunity that they can span that efficiency over that more opportunity? Um, McLaurin was under 100 targets last year, but he was top 20 in yards uh, per reception, yards per target, yards per route run, right? All the metrics that have typically shown us guys like Adam Thielen and Tyler Lockett and and guys who have come out of nowhere to really do well with a larger opportunity. McLaurin's hitting on every one. He was number one in contested catch rate, which is good because his quarterback isn't very good. I can't believe that. (laughs) I can't believe he did that. Yeah, it's crazy. He's a good football player, man. He's great. He's got all the athleticism. He clearly can run routes. He killed it in Matt Harmon's reception perception. So everything you want from a breakout receiver, McLaurin has. They're going to have negative game script. He's going to get tons of targets. The only downside is can Dwayne Haskins support him? Is Dwayne Haskins that bad that he can't support Terry McLaurin? I think he's good enough to make Terry McLaurin a top 12 receiver um, and maybe even more, right? Because, you know, we do see a big jump from quarterbacks from year one to year two. Let's hope we see that this year. I disagree. The answer is DJ Chark, and all the evidence I need is right there in the cheat sheet. 
We have DJ Chark ranked one spot ahead of Terry McLaurin. You ranked them there, so I am using your own rankings to win an argument against Patrick Murphy, the fantasy football king. Chark's going to be great too, man. It, you asked me the league winner, right? So I think McLaurin has a higher ceiling than Chark. How? How? Isn't Minshew projected to be a better quarterback than Haskins? Unless you think it's going to be Alex Smith. It's efficiency. Chark wasn't as efficient as McLaurin with his targets was last year, right? If you take if, if they get the same targets and the same efficiency, McLaurin's going to score more fantasy points. But I believe DJ Chark looks the part of a true NFL alpha more than Terry McLaurin. I think that's the difference. I think that's why you have Chark ahead of McLaurin, because he just looks like an alpha. He looks like a proper X receiver, whereas McLaurin still has a field stretcher vibe. And it's okay. It's okay. We want you to get these guys. When I'm in the pros versus Joe's draft, I'm just drafting straight off the cheat sheet. I did the same thing in the underdog fantasy best ball draft that I participated in last week. I did it again in pros versus Joe's, just going right off the cheat sheet. Just boom, 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 boom. It's too easy, man. It's too easy. Edward Solaire, Chubb, Fournette, Cooper, Metcalf, Prescott, Geis, Ryan, Hawkinson, Hooper, Edmonds, Thomas, Anthony Miller, Justin Jefferson, Mims, Renfro, Higgins, Gage. At every point in the draft, when you go to the cheat sheet, it's as if the cheat sheet is drafting with you. There's a sixth sense that the cheat sheet has. Now is the time to go wide receiver. Now is the time to go tight end. Now is the time to go quarterback. The players are clustered by position in such a way in the cheat sheet that it helps to reinforce an optimal structural draft strategy. It's a beautiful thing, man. You're doing a great job. You know, let's pull back the curtain a little bit. Let me, I'll I'll give a quick description of like kind of how, how it's all put together, how ranks are put together and stuff. This is something I wish I heard on a podcast like three years ago. So <laughs> the way we where we make the cheat sheet, right, is Peter Howard pumps out these projections. And we we plug in the scoring system, PPR, half PPR, whatever it is. Super flex. The whole deal. We plug in the scoring system. And once you do that, you have a pretty easy way to rank player versus player within position. It's not hard. You know, you plug it in whoever scores more points. There's modifiers. There's things we look at, floor upside. But typically, it's pretty easy to rank within the positions. The challenge when you're making ranks is how to rank between positions. So that's when we use value-based drafting. You're just to start, right? To start, you have to start with some model. We start with the framework of value-based drafting, which creates a metric that allows you using value over stream. It creates a metric that allows you to compare position versus position versus position. Once you have that metric, you have your initial versus position ranks. The problem is there's a lot of flaws to value-based drafting, right? Whenever you hear about structural drafting strategies, like late round QB, zero RB, robust RB, these are all exploits of value-based drafting, right? These are strategies, positional strategies that found ways to beat value-based drafting. So when we create these ranks, we have to layer in these structural draft strategies. That's why if you follow these ranks, we bump down the elite receivers. So you're going to end up with two running backs. I mean, that's mainly the strategy this year. Structural drafting wise, you need to start with two running backs. We've lowered the QB ranks because if you follow value-based drafting, you're taking Lamar Jackson in the mid-second, right? But if you go structural drafting, right, we bump them down. So if you follow our strategy, you're going to end up late round QB. I don't know how you did it. There's a lot of people that do a lot of sophisticated things that make player profiler what it is and make the tools and the resources so sophisticated. I don't know how you do that. Layer in structural draft strategies within format specific rankings based on projections. I don't know how you do that, but you did it, man. You did it. 
thank you, thank you, and my fantasy teams, thank you, and and player profiler subscribers, thank you. Now, what about the Fantasy Football King service, where you actually take over teams and run them on the behalf of fantasy gamers, particularly in high-stakes leagues, you make people a lot of money. Yeah, so I mean, we're kind of a, a niche service, right? A lot of different services out there offer things like the Draft Kit and offer things like rankings. And those are for more, like you have a really educated offense, right? You, you have a really smart listeners. Yes, our audience is quite sophisticated. I agree with that. Exactly. Sometimes they just want to, you know, they want to go hunt for themselves, right? They want to take the knowledge you give them and go hunt for themselves. But some guys, they prefer to actually talk to an expert on the phone while they draft, while they do their waiver wire picks, right? So we work with them throughout the season and we give them advice that's tailored to their specific league, all right? So we can sit there in the draft room and see who's gone and see what the best pick for them next is specific to their scoring settings, specific to who's been drafted, specific to who they've already owned, right? So that's the idea behind the service. It's a personalized consultation service. You can get on the phone um, with an expert anytime, right? You can talk to me on the phone, right? We offer 10 minute free consultations. I talk to you on the phone all the time about my leagues. <laughs> yeah. Yes. More than 10 minutes. <laughs> I'm annoying. And I've noticed that a lot of legacy leagues run by the same group of guys for a long time, they have irregular scoring systems. And I've found that your service is particularly valuable for anyone that has an irregular scoring system because you're able to synthesize the format and find the edges within the draft and on the waiver wire that are not apparent to all the league mates, even if they've been in the league for 10 years. The right moves are not intuitive, even to the veterans in those leagues. And so when one of the members of the league brings you in, you go ahead and ingest all the settings, and you spit out some actionable advice that, is truly killer for these leagues. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of leagues out there. It's kind of the nature of, of just the job I have here, right? I have to go draft for some teams. I might have to draft. I learn about a league at noon and have to draft for it at 5 p.m., right? So I have to be able to quickly find out how their scoring settings, how their roster construction is going to change, right? Because a lot of these leagues aren't single QB PPR. If they're hiring a consultant to help them out, they're complex leagues, right? They're competitive, expensive, complex leagues. So I have to figure out how to get an edge on guys who have been doing these leagues for five to 10 years. And it just goes back to what we talked about before in the draft kit, right? You have to apply the concepts of value-based drafting, right? Once you apply those concepts and understand the roster construction, then you can see, okay, this is how I want to approach this league. This is why I plug in these scoring settings. This is how I approach this league. I mean, this is how we pumped out Scott Fishbowl ranks in like a week, right? When you have the framework in place, it's just a couple, you know, a couple of changes and boom, you have, you have your ranks. You have, you know how to do it. And Scott Fishbowl is a great example of it. It's a super complex league and it's, it's very hard to actually take advantage of the Scott Fishbowl, right? He builds it in such a way where every position you can make an argument for. Right, right. We did great, and don't get me wrong, RB early was the way to go. Oh, no, we did great. Oh, we, we, we were awesome. Our team is awesome. My Scott Fishbowl team is excellent. Which is what makes that league so fun, right? Scott Fish knows what he's doing. He builds it in a way that you, you can build a team and, like, you can go early tight end, early QB, early wide receiver, early running back, and make a justification that you're— Oh, you can't go early receiver. You can't. You can't go early receiver in the Scott Fishbowl. If you implement a robust wide receiver in the Scott Fishbowl, you are going to lose. Yeah, you're in a lot of trouble. I mean, Devontae Adams went in the third round in my league. <laughs> the third round, Devontae Adams. It gives you an idea. Like People were really fading receiver hard. And that, that was the right move. No, but some people didn't know. Some people went in there thinking, 
I have zero RB on my chest. I need to get Tyreek Hill in the second round. And that's not a good idea. The other mistake made in the fishbowl the most was people overdrafted quarterbacks. Oh, brutal. In a typical super flex league, if you have two quarterbacks, you have like five other positions starting. So your quarterbacks make up a pretty high percentage of your points. In the fishbowl, he kept it at two quarterbacks. But then he added like 10 other spots or like nine other spots that you can start players. So automatically your quarterbacks are devalued, right? The exponential, the, the extra points they're adding for you are devalued by the nine other positions you have. All these additional flex positions diluted the value of quarterback. And then Scott Fish took it a step further and he's like, you know what? I'm going to nerf quarterback. I'm going to do minus one for incompletions and minus one for sacks, right? So, I mean, when you do that, you're already devaluing a position that was already devalued. And then QB was drafted as if it was a normal super flex league. Like if you compare to Scott Fishbowl QB ADP, it's just a normal super flex ADP. And it shouldn't be drafted that way. But even if you just ran the scoring system through value-based drafting, we would have suggested that fantasy gamers draft quarterbacks earlier. But then you layer on the structural component of it, knowing where you can get guys like Teddy Bridgewater, knowing where you can get guys like Derek Carr, quarterbacks were pushed down further than anyone was ready to see like you crack open those scott fishbowl rankings for the first time you think oh i can't wait i'm gonna see a bunch of quarterbacks in the top 20 and that just wasn't the case and the same thing happens when a brand new subscriber will go to our cheat sheet they'll crack it open for the first time and they'll see all these tight ends pushed way down they'll see these quarterbacks pushed way down they'll even see some of these wide receivers pushed down out of the first three rounds and it's like you need to get your running backs here we're setting this up so you don't even have to think now we have a little button where you hit the player as they're drafted and you can track who's being drafted you can always see who's the best player available per the draft kit i've been doing that in these best ball drafts on underdog fantasy over at the ffpc and this season hasn't happened yet but these teams look pretty good they look pretty good if you drafted early qb the last couple years if you drafted early tight end the last couple years you probably didn't like your teams very much Right. I mean, it's just the way it's been going. I mean, early QB has been a terrible draft pick for like five plus years now. Um, will it change one year? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe Lamar Jackson drops right. three points a game this year. Maybe. But, you know, at some point you just have to admit that late round QB is the most effective draft strategy, especially from a structural standpoint, is extremely effective. And to fade it is at your own risk. Per our cheat sheet, if Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes is available at the end of the third round, that's when we say push the button, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the challenges, right? So the key with our cheat sheet is we want you to draft running backs in the first two rounds. In the third round, I mean, Lamar Jackson will never be available at the end of the third round anyway. But in the end of the third round, if he's available. The question is, because of what we've seen from Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes the last couple of years, they've elevated the value of the quarterback position. So even those that know late round quarterback is the way to go, there has to be a point where you would go quarterback where you would draft Lamar Jackson where you would draft Patrick Mahomes and the answer to that question is the late third round correct yeah just like it's represented in the draft kit yeah the late third rounds when you draft them um you probably won't happen to anyone but as long as you're getting your first two running backs it gives you a lot more flexibility um how you want to progress the rest of the draft because running backs the first thing to dry up right there's receivers late there's tight ends late there's QBs late there's all every other position you can get later on but running backs dry up so fast this year you have to get your first two running backs RB thirst is real. Why do we have Kyler Murray below Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson? I mean, Kyler Murray wasn't even that good last year. I think people are getting a little too excited about the... <gasps> What's Patrick? 
<laughs> I mean, he was he was okay, but he, I mean, he wasn't TV three. How dare you? People are getting a little too excited about the the second year breakout after Lamar Jackson to Pat Mahomes. Everyone's trying to guess the next one, and you know, Kyler Murray. Yeah, sure, maybe he breaks out, but I think we're. We're taking two very big outliers. Pat Mahomes and Lamar Jackson are massive outliers that just coincidentally happened the last two years. They're very. We might not see another um, QB outside the top twelve break out like those two for the next decade. Like it just might not happen. So trying to project it by going to Kyler Murray and saying, "Well, he's the next one," it's it's very risky. Guys like Dak, guys like Russell Wilson, Deshaun Watson are much safer. They all. I mean, Deshaun Watson's going to run for four hundred yards. Deshaun Watson's going to have the best line of his career with the best set of field stretchers maybe ever for a quarterback in the NFL. It's a complete projection, right? To put Kyler Murray at QB3 is a very, very optimistic projection on what he could do. He could be QB20, <gasps> QB15. He could, he could be his floors. How dare you? Yeah, I mean, I like Kyler Murray, but... You don't. I don't think you like Kyler. You did the thing that all the fantasy analysts do. Oh, well, I like the guy. I like his talent. Oh, don't, get, don't get me wrong. I like Kyler Murray, but we're lower than consensus on him. No, Kyler Murray, per Patrick Murphy, the fantasy football king, Kyler Murray is overrated this year. That's it. That's it. So who do you qualify for truth or status on? Who's underrated? Give me a fringe guy that's underrated. I'm going to go with uh, Daryl Anderson. Oh, I, I think he's going to get his shot. So... Everyone loves Tony Pollard, right? They say, oh, Tony Pollard's so great. Why do they like Tony Pollard? Because he was good last year behind running behind the Cowboys, behind the Cowboys line. He had two big weeks. He had two boom weeks on limited touches. He's Ezekiel Elliott's handcuff. And since when is anyone excited to run out and draft a handcuff in the 10th round? But from a talent perspective, I think people are... I think there's a consensus that Pollard's better than Henderson from a talent perspective. Even though in college they were on the same exact team and Henderson outran him by two yards per carry. Well, Henderson was the starter and Tony Pollard was the satellite back. Two years ago. They were on the same exact team. Right. Right. And then you put him in two different situations. You put Henderson behind a crumbling O-line in LA and you put Pollard behind the Cowboys O-line and all of a sudden Pollard's putting up better numbers and everyone's like, well, Henderson just sucks and Pollard's great. In reality, Pollard probably is very good and Henderson's very good too. Context matters. Context matters. I can't believe we're at a place where Tony Pollard's overrated, but we're at that place. Yeah. He's the Kyler Murray of running backs. <laughs> I can't believe that calling Pollard the Kyler Murray of running backs on this particular podcast is an insult. That's amazing. I uh, yeah. So I think Henderson's going to get a shot, right? Uh, Acres is probably you see McVeigh's already coming out with his RBBC stuff. Henderson's going to get a shot. He's I think he's talented, and he's basically <laughs> left for dead at this point in fantasy football. People don't really have a lot of faith in him, and I, I'm holding out. I guess you can. He counts as a truther, right? This year. Would you rather have Darrell Henderson or Chase Edmonds? Oh, Chase Edmonds. Oh, thank you. Okay. Phew. <laughs> no, I'm not crazy. Phew. Okay. Oh, hey, guess what? Guess what? Oh, congratulations, Patrick Murphy. You have gained entry into the good analyst room by being bullish on Chase Edmonds. That's all you need to do. That's the only criteria. That's it. Congratulations. Probably at ADP, I should qualify that statement. I think Edmonds going to beat them out later. You don't have to qualify anything. This is a value-oriented podcast. It is assumed that whenever we talk about a player being worth acquiring, it is assumed to be at his ADP. Now, get you out of here. Bold prediction. Very, very bold. I'm talking very, 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 very,
Oh, this is Bolt. Uh, Darren Waller, tight end one. Fuck you! Fuck you! God damn it! It was between Sanders and Edward Solaire, and I went Edward Solaire. Oh, dude, that's the way to go, man. That's the way to go. People are sleeping. People are sleeping. Killed me. Killed me. These guys all let me have Chubb by taking Drake and Hill and Eckler. Yeah, that's the pick. You're going to get Fournette in the third in every single draft you're in. That's a no-brainer. Slam dunk. Cooper Metcalf? I mean, God, yeah, that's why you That's why you wait on receivers, right? Cooper Metcalf. Cooper Metcalf, right? And then I got Dak. And this is best ball, so I need two quarterbacks at least. Wow, Marquise Brown in what, the fifth? Marquise Brown went in the fifth? He went early as hell, yeah. That's a, That's crazy. That's crazy. Graham Barfield loves Marquise Brown. So I snuck in Geis because I didn't think I was going to get both Duke Johnson and Chase Edmonds, and it turns out I, I couldn't have. Duke Johnson went here, so I could have done it, but uh, then I would have been shorter tight end. So, I, I mean, I, I snuck in Geis. He was late, seventh round. Geis went after Marlon Mack and Tevin Coleman and Raheem Mostert and J.K. Dobbins. It's, like, gross. Did you see? I mean, Geis had 40 weighted opportunities last year, and he averaged, like, I think against stacked fronts, he averaged, like, 12 yards a carry or something. Like, it was super small sample, but he completely destroyed in his small sample. He destroys. He destroys. Yeah. I mean, if he's healthy, he's... he's uh... He is healthy. That's the thing. He is healthy. Will Fuller is healthy. He is healthy. Stays healthy. Stays healthy. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I like drafting guys like that. I love how everyone's worried about him, even though... You know, Evan Ingram's the, the most fragile tight end, and no one talks about that. It's just so arbitrary. Who gets tagged with the injury-prone label? Why are you hitting uh, two QBs early? Because in best ball, if you get two top eight quarterbacks, you don't need a third quarterback. I didn't know it was best ball. Okay, there you go. Yeah. In best ball, if I get two top eight quarterbacks, well, I consider Brady to be super, super solid. So it was either Ryan or Brady. Brady actually went before Ryan. And then Wentz was still on the board. So I could have had either Ryan or Wentz, and I went Ryan because I think he's more stable than Wentz. Yeah, Ryan's definitely more stable than Wentz. It's all about Dak and Ryan for maximum stability at quarterback and then just not drafting another quarterback. And what it does is it opens you up. In this zone, I got my my last two running backs and my three tight ends out of the way in the 7 through 12 zone going Geis, Ryan, Hawkinson, Hooper, Edmonds, and then Ian Thomas. Ian Thomas slipped, man. Look at this. Doyle went before him. Ebron went before him. Janu went well before him. Cook went before him. Ian Thomas is smash. I'm surprised Ian and Janu are so far apart. Like, to me, they're very similar picks. Exactly. They are similar. He's in a much better offense than Janu Smith. I mean, that offense is going to be bananas. Irv Smith's interesting, too. I've been thinking about that. I mean, who, who are they going to throw the ball to in Minnesota? No, Irv Smith is interesting. He's the guy I would have drafted. I would have gone Irv Smith here had Ian Thomas not been here in the 12th. Him and Irv Smith had, had queued up. But then to get Anthony Miller here was crazy to me. They went Campbell, Judy, Debo, Deshaun, Samuel, Watkins, all before Anthony Miller? He'll have a greater target share than all those guys. How about Renfro, man, in the 16th? I'm warming up to Renfro a lot. I mean, some of his, uh, he was extremely efficient last year. Especially finished strong, dude. Of course, of course, dude. Look at how I blocked. I went all running back blocks in the beginning, then a block of wide receiver, a block of quarterback, a block of tight end, and then a giant swath of wide receivers to close it out. Six straight wide receivers. Look at that. Look how beautiful that is. That's how you do it. 
And look at that. Look at how I alternated stability versus upside. Miller and then Justin Jefferson. Renfro, Denzel Mims. T. Higgins, Russell Gage. No, I mean, this is, this is how you do a best ball draft, right? And you talk about all the time, but you want to hit the receivers late, right? Because you get the spike weeks from the receivers late. You get the sturdy, you know, the solid weeks from your running back you draft early. Look at this. Someone drafted Jordan Reed. Someone drafted Kyle Rudolph. Someone drafted Giovanni Bernard. Someone drafted LaShawn McCoy, Carlos Hyde, Darwin Thompson, Chris Thompson, Jamal Williams, Rashad Penny. These are all zeros. They're just collecting zeros at running back and tight end when I'm going wide receiver and I'm getting starter, 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 starter. High draft capital, productive, athletic, college prospect, right? It's just crazy that Renfro is there in the 16th round, Russell Gage. One guy I'm surprised you didn't take was Sanu in the 17th. I think I might rather I might I might rather have Sanu than T Higgins this year. There was a bunch of guys. James Washington was there too. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple options there. It's it's interesting. Like Sanu, I'm really warming up to. In like super deep spots like this, like not really in regular leagues. But I mean, he could see 100 targets easy. But, but he's a, he's on the pup. Listen, I felt like with getting Amari and Metcalf, I used a fourth and a fifth rounder, and you only start two receivers. It's two receivers, two running backs, two flex. So with Anthony Miller and with Renfro and with Gage, I felt like I could swing at Mims and swing at Higgins in particular. Because that offense, man, I want Burrow. He and Burrow have been working out of the offseason together. That could be exciting. Yeah, no, I mean, you're going to get spike weeks from them all. Higgins is going to play. Higgins is going to have some weeks. Yeah, so between these last five receivers, or six receivers you got, you're going to have enough weeks covered to, to hit your flex. Like, they'll be producing at a rate where you're going to hit your flex numbers, like, well. So, yeah, I, I like the draft, man. This is the right way to structure your team. Because it was Sanu instead of Higgins, but also James Washington. I was actually doing a podcast at the time. I might have actually drafted James Washington there um, had I known he was even available, but I was on this podcast, the High Stakes Fantasy Football Hour with Eric Balkman and Dave Gerzak. But on our cheat sheet, Higgins was higher than those guys. Yeah, I was going off the cheat sheet. Higgins actually ahead of Renfro, ahead of James Washington. Sanu's actually one below Gage. Yeah, I got to bump up Sanu. But this is also, it's based on, a, if you think about like a single QB setting, it's a little different than best ball, right? Like you're going to, Sanu's upside is less than T. Higgins, right? There's a chance T. Higgins just explodes, right? Small chance, but there's a range of outcomes. This is probably not in the range of outcomes that Sanu's a wide receiver one this year, right? So you, you that's why like um, in best ball, when you can't add drop, the safer guys sometimes get bumped up like a Sanu is a higher floor play. But in single QB, you are swinging for the fences in the, in the 200s, right? So that's why you get the guys like Higgins bumped up a little bit but i gotta move up sanu anyway i've been i've been, I moved up a little bit but i guess it's just not enough yet yeah i guess you're right like because it's best ball i should have prioritized guys that are a little more stable like sanu and washington because you don't know what higgins what his role is going to be this year he could be a straight backup to aj green <laughs> which i mean it's probably only gonna last eight weeks anyway i mean green probably won't play a full season but um yeah i mean he'll probably be a straight backup to aj green john ross i mean he might if they keep John Ross out there as a field stretcher, yeah, he's going to be playing the A.J. Regan role behind A.J. Green. One of Ross or Green is going to get hurt. So, And, and Higgins did go very early. Wasn't he like the first pick in the second round? Yeah, he went really early. He was an early second round pick. He was, he was a top 35 pick. I, I like it. I like it. I like getting a guy like that here. I think it makes more sense. This roster configuration makes more sense because I have so many receivers, because I went heavy receiver, because I did basically get a luxury pick by doing two quarterbacks over three 
So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight receivers in an 18-round draft. So I think it makes a little more sense to do that. Whereas if I was maybe going six or seven receivers, I would want to lock in a floor guy more likely, like a Sanu. KJ Hamler didn't even get drafted on. I was wondering if he would go late in these kind of things for the same reason Isabella. But it was Hamler and Higgins. I, I knew I was going to go Gage late because I want to stack him with Matt Ryan. Mm-hmm. Mike Leone drafted both Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley. And then he drafted Kyler Murray over Matt Ryan in the seventh round because he just couldn't help himself, hoping that Matt Ryan would make it back around to him. And I prevented that from happening. And he was very upset that he couldn't get that Jones-Ridley correlation. Marlon Mack had a Darius, guys. Jeez. It's a weird, weird world. But it's also a weird world where I'm taking Chase Edmonds over Sony Michelle. Jesus, Sony Michelle is borderline not draftable at this point. You know what I mean? I'm, I, that's the next update I'm making to the rankings is we're going we're gonna to bring down Michelle. And with this foot thing, it's like, come on. It's easy. It's not good, man. He's, he's becoming undraftable. He's becoming undraftable really quickly. Why, why would you draft him? He's now gone from like a high floor, low ceiling play to like a low floor, low ceiling play, which is just the worst, the worst thing in the world. Look at Leone gifted me Chase Edmonds by drafting Darrell Henderson here. <laughs> yeah, I would rather have Chase. Chase Edmonds is, uh, yeah, um, Chase Edmonds and Duke Johnson. Those it's hard. You want to come out of every draft with those guys. I like what you did with the tight ends too, and I think this is something um, we should start talking about as like a strategy for single QB this year is just go for like three tight ends. It sounds stupid, but go for three three tight ends late in your draft in single QB. All upside guys, one of them's probably going to hit. Like if you look at last year, if you did it, you probably would have hit on a Waller or an Andrews. That's what you need to do in these leagues. Every year, tight ends come from late rounds. A couple years ago, it was Kittle. You need to hit that guy. The best way to do it is give yourself as many, you know, put as many lot of tickets as you can in there late and uh, see, see if you hit one of these upside guys because one of these guys is going to pop. If this was traditional league and not best ball, in the 10th round, I would have swung harder at tight end and gone upside over stability, and I would have gone Jonu Smith. So my tight ends would have been Hawkinson, Smith, Ian Thomas. Between those three, I can almost guarantee you one of them is going to break out and be top eight, maybe top five. Yeah, that's the point. And it's probably Hawkinson. <laughs> that's why the early round tight end guys, what they don't get is, right? Yeah, Kittle and Kelsey can, can provide some value early round but the problem is when you're up against a team that got mark andrews in the 10th or darren waller off the waiver wire your advantage is over right you can't get running backs like that that produce top five level at their position the entire year you just can't get that in the 10th in the round right. to start so that's the same reason with late round qb tight ends break out hard that's the key tight ends break out hard the first year they break out Exactly. And you need to take advantage of that asymmetrical breakout that so often tight ends experience at some point in their career arc. It's the opportunity cost, right? There's no other position. QB and tight end do only ones where you can get super late. You can get season long top five studs at those positions late. You can't get that at wide receiver and you can't get a running back. Over time, you'll see running backs emerge throughout the season. You'll see receivers emerge throughout the season, but not week one. Like we're not missing on... You know, we're not missing on top 10 receivers for the season in week one or top 10 running backs that early, right? Usually injuries or rookies develop over time. Tight ends we miss. Week one, Waller was a top five tight end last year. He got like 14 targets or something week one. Like we missed that, right? We didn't know that was going to happen. Mark Andrews was a beast all year last year. We didn't know he was going to do that. Two years ago, 
maybe three. Kittle was a beast. Four years ago, Eifert came out of nowhere and put up like 13 TDs. Every year, these guys emerge right from the start of the season. And their prospect profiles are right in front of us. They're right in front of our face with excellent athleticism and oftentimes dominance at the college level. Tight end breakouts are also the easiest to predict. It's when, right? We know they're going to break out. Right. When. To specify the years, the challenge. So that's why you get a couple. Yeah, that's why you just throw your, I mean, throw your hat in the ring. Uh, JJ did like a, JJ Axerigan did a, like a really good um, study on t- breakout tight end. And he, fi- he actually determined draft capital was one of the big items that led to a breakout, right? Like first and second round tight ends are of much course. more likely to break out than, uh, than late round tight ends. Um, so that's it's like an argument for TJ Hawkinson and uh, Noah Fant this year. Is there they have good draft capital? Yeah, I mean Hawkinson is a no-brainer, man. Yeah, uh, I mean Hawkinson's the guy you have to you have to draft if if you're not going to get an early tight end, which we're basically advising against. I think Hawkinson and Fant are um, you got to get one of the two. Gasecki was a second-round pick. Gasecki's too. Gasecki's good. I'm a little more nervous about Gasecki. Uh, there's some stats around him around like uh, yards after catch and stuff that are like concerning. Um, he was pretty inefficient last year. I would have expected to need an elite athlete like Gasecki did. Yeah, but the, the catchable target rate was super low. Well, I mean, is that going to change? It's It was very low randomly. Like, it's like Fitzpatrick's not inaccurate necessarily. It's just that Gasecki was unlucky. So you got to be careful. No, I guess he's a fine pick because he's going to see volume. Well, he was top five in target distance. I thought he'd have more broken tackles. I thought he'd have a better yak. Um, for that, look at that athleticism. Like, what's he doing when he gets the ball that he can't run? 1.9 yards after the catch per target is low. But his target quality rating was outside the top 30. His catchable target rate was 70%, which is horrendous. And his true catch rate was average. It's just the average target depth. He's getting deep down the field. He's converting in contested situations. He's not getting yards after the catch. That's his big problem. That's the thing that held him back. Which is weird, right? Look at those athletic measurables. How is he not getting yards after the catch? The dude's a monster. They were facing a bunch of really good, strong safeties, and they were able to bring him down. I mean, it's just a small sample, man. I I don't overweight any of that. Yeah, it's 89 targets. I mean... Of those 89 targets, he catches what percentage of those? 57%. Okay, so now we're at 51 receptions. Of those 51 receptions, he puts up 173 yards after the catch. That's not great. It's not great. But what often happens is is that the, the yards after the catch, with like a Kittle, he takes this past 60 yards for a touchdown, and that buoys him. It could have been on the 52nd reception that Gasecki would have caught last year that he would have taken at 60 yards. You need to not overreact to any of these metrics and more focus on the targets and this athleticism and the age. 24 years old, these measurables, these targets, the rest is going to take care of itself. That's how I think about it. So I wouldn't overthink him. But you like this draft? I think you did a good job, right? This is how I draft best ball. Running backs early, wide receivers late, sandwich um, some upside tight ends and some stable QBs in the middle. If you actually game it out in your head what's going to happen week to week, this team is going to put up a lot of points. It's going to put up a lot of points, bro. Look at those running backs. <laughs> look at those running backs. Nice. I mean, I'm just saying, man, look at the quarterbacks, for Christ's sake. Yeah. They're going to put up a lot of points. Here's the one issue. Do you see the issue, the bye weeks? I don't score any quarterback points in week 10. You also get more points in the other weeks because both players are playing each and every other week. So you're going to get some points back in the other weeks because they are playing all 16 games. 
Mm-hmm. It's just that in a week where Matt Ryan would have had a bye, but he doesn't have a bye, he might have scored five more points than Dak. So you get that five points, but you miss out on the 20 points. So you get a five points one week from, from Ryan and five points one week from Dak, but you miss out on the 20 points from that bye week. So you're really giving back like 10 points because of bye week incompetence. Don't get second by 10 points. <laughs> but yeah, so if I get second by 10 points, I'll be mad. The decision point was I could have stacked DK Metcalf with Russell Wilson or Dak Prescott with Amari Cooper. Cooper's the kind of guy who can put up like two to three TDs in a random game. Cooper's spike weeks are bigger than DK's spike weeks. So the correlation juice is a little bit more with Cooper as opposed to Metcalf. But I, I think Metcalf's going to put up some big spike weeks this year. I think last year's week-to-week consistency for DK Metcalf was an aberration. I think the real DK Metcalf is going to be a lot more volatile than what we saw last year. Absolutely. Yeah, he just got touchdowns on his low-volume days. I mean, that's why it looked consistent. Yeah, his low-volume weeks, he happened to score touchdowns. On his higher-volume weeks, he didn't score touchdowns. Like, (laughs) that's the path to consistency for an otherwise inconsistent receiver. I think Metcalf might be one of those receivers. We project growth for receivers year over year, especially the young ones. I'm not sure Metcalf is going to grow like the rest of them because of his limited route tree. Like we can say, oh, he's going to start running all these routes. He does, that's not what he does, right? He wins on goes, he wins on slants. That's what he wins on. He's going to run those for his entire career. But I did get him in a pretty good place. Well, McLaurin, Lockett, and Cup were all off the board. So it was either Metcalf or Devontae Parker. Who do we have in the rankings on that? I feel like we have Parker. Well, I could have gone Parker in the sixth round, but I really wanted to stack Dak with Amari Cooper. The reason why you, you do Metcalf here is because you can go back with Parker here. I hear you. You were playing the ADP game, which is smart. Yeah, I was playing the ADP game. But then I was between Parker and, and Prescott, Parker, Prescott, and I was like, oh, God, I really want that correlation. And then look what happened. In the seventh round, I could have had Deshaun Watson. So... If I could go back and redo it, I probably would go Parker there, knowing I could get Watson and Ryan. I mean, we are we higher on Dak? I mean, we have him at QB3, which I think is right. I'm wondering if that that's probably a little higher than industry. Well, look where he went versus Mahomes. I thought it was good value on Dak, especially knowing I had Cooper. And Dak is QB... Ooh, look at that. Kyler's QB3, according to ADP. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so also, the other thing was... There was a possibility that Gallup would have made it all the way back to me in round eight. And there was also a possibility that Lamb would have made it to me in round 10. See that? Mm-hmm. I love getting Dak because there's double stacking ability with Lamb and with Jarwin. But look where fucking Jarwin went. He went before Hawkinson. It's crazy. Yeah, there's some weird picks in here. No, but look at this one. Look at this one. Look at this one. Look at Tariq Cohen in the fifth round. Oh, that's gross. You're going to see Tariq Cohen in the fifth round. You'll never see that again. Jordan Howard in the eighth. Oh, Jordan Howard is like, I mean, it's hard to call him a bust because of how late he's going, but he's just behind the worst O-line in the league. That's not Jordan Howard. He needs a good O-line. He's going from one of the best O-lines to one of the worst O-lines in the league. Like, that's going to crush Jordan Howard. He's going to be useless in the Dolphins. Like, he's going to be completely useless. How can he be useful on the worst offensive line? He's not elusive in any way. (laughs) Yeah, he takes what the line gives him really well, but that line gives him nothing. Exactly. Then what's he going to do? Oh, that's horrible. You're on a Wi-Fi extender, bro. Come on. Come on. To do a show with the Podfather? Wi-Fi extender? Oh, my God. Puke. 
you have a really educated offense, right? You, you have a really smart listeners. These teams look pretty good. They look pretty good. You have a really educated offense, right? You, you have a really smart listeners. Hipster Fantasy Gaming 101 right there. I have zero RB on my chest. I need to get Tyree Kill in the second round. And that's not a good idea. You have a really educated offense, right? You, you have a really smart listeners. Why don't you care about Jason Witten? He's going to catch 15 more passes than Mark Andrews. He's the Kyler Murray of running backs. Uh, it's vicious. It's a vicious schedule. He's, un he's undraftable. D don't, get, uh, don't get me wrong. I like Kyler Murray, but... You don't need to be an expert at analysis to figure out he's going to get a few more TDs this year. Like, come on. But for the mortals out there, I don't know how they even believe it. I barely believe it. It freaks me out, man. Drafting a handcuff wide receiver in the single-digit rounds? What is this madness? Stop disparaging Darren Waller. <laughs> I feel like I'm living in a bizarro world every single day I wake up and turn on my computer. Hey, you're triggering me over here. It's Darren Waller. He's random jabs at Darren Waller. Because those two targets he's going to get in week one, one of them go for a touchdown. Didn't you know, Patrick? That's like a, you call it a riddle. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's too good. I'm too good at this. Somebody stop me. But if he gets the passing down work, he's a first round pick. Everything is dependent on everything on a football field. It's right up there with Goblin over Evans, man. So it might be your best take ever. Stop disparaging Darren Waller. <laughs>